we want to make it all about you rather than ourselves. We want to be focused solely on you um, rather than our own interests. I know that is very counter our culture and counter even our own desires because it's so easy to focus on ourselves, but instead we want to be able to focus on you. And You know, Christmas happens to be probably the best time of the year where it is possible for us to sort of reevaluate our lives. I know Easter's big too, but Christmas time, it just seems very special and just something that we can do in our lives to focus more on you. You know, we could, if we could just have Christmas, or at least, shall we say, the recognition that Christ is the Messiah, if that was true in our hearts every day and that we held on to it, Father, our lives would be different. Our world would be a different place. We would live our lives every day as if Jesus really was real, as if he really was the Messiah, as if he really did have the power to allow us to put away our brokenness and take hold of God's plan for our lives. Father, one of the ways that we can get started on that right now is just to do something we should do every day, which is go to you and ask for forgiveness for anything that's in our lives that doesn't need to be there. Maybe there's sin, maybe there's brokenness, maybe there's lack of forgiveness, maybe there's hurt, maybe there's anger, whatever it is. God, we're just going to take a moment right now, each of us individually, to go to you and just put it all on the table and ask forgiveness. Let's just do that quietly. Father, forgive us for those things, and tonight we just want to thank you that you did send the Messiah, you did send Jesus, that the prophecies were true, that God, you did really care enough about us that you would provide a Savior for us. So Father, we thank you for that. Tonight we just ask your Holy Spirit to be in our lives, calling us to you, calling us to live our lives worthy of the way Jesus would want. Father, we pray this in his name. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Where's the snow? Why are you smiling like that? I just like to smile. Smiling's my favorite. Make work your favorite. That's your favorite, okay? Okay. Work is your new favorite. Fine. Time for the announcement. Okay. Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh, my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. He'll be here to take pictures with all the children. Yeah. Just keep your receipts. 10 a.m. tomorrow. 10 a.m. tomorrow. Santa's coming to town. Yes. Can you sign this for me? Oh, hi. Santa's coming. You know, in our world, it's very common for us to get really excited about the fact that Santa Claus is coming to town, to be really excited about the fact that, that we can look forward to Christmas, to be really excited about that. But the thing is, it's very interesting because we can also be very excited about the fact that God ultimately sent his son, Jesus, to be our Messiah and to be our Savior. I know that in our world today, it's unusual for people to be like, woohoo, Jesus came, right? 
In fact, it's kind of humdrum. Uh, but we're going to talk through this series about what it was to be like, what it was like to live a couple thousand years ago, to live before Jesus came. What would it be like? What would our expectation of the Messiah be like? What would our feelings be like? How would we experience Christmas? Well, there wasn't Christmas, but how would we experience the expectation, the hope of who Jesus would be? Well, here's the thing. We're going to be doing our new series called A Christmas Prophecy. And we're going to be looking at different prophecies and sort of this foretelling and about the fact that people were really excited who Jesus would be. They were really excited that God was going to send a Messiah. They didn't know about it. They didn't understand it, but they were really excited about it. In contrast to us, where it's kind of humdrum in our lives. Our four-week series is looking forward to the birth of Jesus, um, sort of to give a perspective on what that was like. And uh, so I thought it'd be a fun way of doing the Christmas series. I've done some deeper series for the last couple of months, so I thought it would be a fun series. All right, here's our strategy. Our strategy is today we're going to look at a prophecy of Jesus' origin and talk about sort of what that means for us and how um, it was so exciting and people were really excited, some people were, um, by the fact of the Messiah coming into our world. Well, we're going to see what the Bible says. It's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We're going to just look at one small verse, one small prophecy. If you want to check it out, uh, Micah chapter 5, it'll be up on the big screen as well. Um, and uh, it'll uh, be in your Bibles, of course. So if you want to turn there, that would be great. Uh, but it will be up on the big screen as well. Micah 5, 2. All right, here's what it says. Very simple, very small uh, prophecy here, but very powerful. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. All right? Now, at first glance, seems simple, but we're going to break it down tonight and talk about how powerful this prophecy was. Okay, th three ideas. You can follow along in your handout in the bulletin, but the uh, first idea we're going to be talking about tonight is that God had a plan from the very beginning. It, it's really cool. It's really exciting when we have a plan for our lives, right? I mean, if, if you get a raise or you, your boss tells you you're on track for a promotion or things seem to be clicking in your lives, it's very exciting. It feels really good. It feels like your life has meaning or value or purpose, you know, this sort of thing. But when we talk about God and we look at his, what he wants to do in our lives and his plan for our lives, when we become a believer in Jesus and we realize that God has a purpose and a plan for our lives that's more than just living and dying, more than just, you know, working for the man and making a few bucks and, you know, just getting along and getting by and barely making it and all those other things, that when we realize that God had a plan from the very beginning um, for not only our lives but also the whole world, that can give us a sense of confidence. It can make us really excited about what God would do. Now, here's the thing. Jesus came... 2,000 years ago, right? But recorded history goes back 3,000 years before then. So there were 3,000 years where people knew that God was going to send a Messiah, but they didn't have any idea what it was going to be like, right? And so we know that the, probably the first book of the Bible ever written down was Job. And Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and one day he'll walk upon the earth. That's a prophecy in the book of Job. And so from the beginning of time, or beginning of recorded history, people knew especially the people of God, knew that God was going to send a Messiah. But they didn't have any idea who that Messiah would be or what it would look like. They had no idea. And so for us, sometimes we take it for granted, and this is kind of where we're going to go in the series, we take it for granted because we know Jesus, right? We know where he's born. We know his mom. We know his dad. We know his social security number. We know his birth date. We know all this stuff about him, right? And when we drive by the manger scenes, nativity scenes, oh, it's Jesus. No big deal, right? Because it's common. 
But in the ancient world, people were expectant, almost Will Ferrell expectant, you know, Santa, you know, hoping and praying for the Messiah to come in the world. So let's talk about this plan and God's prophecy for the Messiah. God had a plan from the very beginning. And I just asked this question. Can you imagine what it was like waiting for the Messiah? Let me give you another imagery as well as we work through this. Imagine what it would be like to be a child, right? Imagine what it was like when you were a child. And you're looking forward to Christmas. You've got some ideas of what you want Santa Claus to bring you. And you don't really know. I mean, there's that hope. There's that wonder. You know, my son's three, and every day now he wakes me up because it's after Turkey Day, so he wants to know if it's Christmas Day now, right? And unless you were the kind of person who had parents who you just gave them a list and they automatically gave you everything that was on the list, I didn't have that experience. In fact, I pretty much, I know this sounds really bad, but I never got the one item I wanted every year. I know it sounds bad because I, I had a nice Christmas, but I never got the one item I always wanted, right? Um, of course, as being a boy growing up, it was like guns and boats and things like go-karts, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, um, but we look forward with a certain hope, but without really knowing exactly what's going to happen. And that's the same way the people in the ancient world were. Now, here's how they did. How, here's how they looked forward. Oh, let me just mention this. What we see with humdrum today was a big deal in the ancient world. But here's what they had. We're... If you remember, we have the Bible, right? Well, in the ancient world, they had the Bible, too. They just didn't have the New Testament. Just the first half, the Old Testament, right? And they call it the Old Testament. They just called it the Bible. That's what it was. And so the people who had the Bible, they read it. And, yeah, they read the stories about Genesis and Exodus and all that sort of thing. And they read the prophets and they read the Proverbs and the Psalms, just like we do. Um, and they read it because it was, that you know, they still practiced the sacrifices and did that sort of thing as well. But... They always read it looking forward to what God would do with the Messiah. And so there are lots of little hints, lots of little vague statements, lots of little things that they were like, could this really be a glimpse of who the Messiah would be? And that's what happens in Micah 5 too, because we see that Micah changes his tune when he's talking from his prophecy, and then he switches over to who the Messiah would be. And so people would look and read in the Bible of their day, and they would be excited because they would see that God was going to do something in the Messiah. And so what we know as common and ordinary, they long for and they look forward to. You know, this idea of prophecy gave hope to people in a hopeless world. Uh, the world today is hopeless. Why is it hopeless? It's hopeless because we as people can't fix it, we can't make it right, we can't heal it. Only God has the power to do that. We go, we struggle, we die. That's the lot of our life here in a broken, sin-fallen world, right? Only God is able to redeem us and bring us to a place where we are able to be made right and whole again, although the completion of that is not in this world. And so what happens is, is that when we look at prophecy in the Bible, most prophecy in the Bible is foretelling. What do I mean by foretelling? Well, let me give you an example of the prophet Jonah. Everyone knows the most important thing Jonah did was what? Well, get swallowed by the fish, right? Uh, Noah, Jonah, right, close. But Jonah, right, except that that's not really what, you know, Jonah did. I, don't worry, I asked it in three services, nobody knew. Jonah did what? He prophesied to Nineveh and told Nineveh that if they don't get right with God, that there's going to be a problem. That was, the big, that was the big issue. And so a lot of the Bible is foretelling. A lot of the prophetic statements are foretelling. But some of it is foretelling. Some of it is telling the future. Some of it is predicting what God will do. And this Micah 5, too, is an example of that. God here is using this prophet to prophesy, to tell about the coming of the Messiah. 
It gave hope to people in a hopeless world. You see, in the ancient world, life was short. It was hopeless. There was despair. There was problems. There was war. There was famine. There was pestilence. I know we have that in the modern world, but it's probably no comparison to the ancient world. And so people longed for hope. They wanted something in their lives that meant more than them. They needed God. And the difference between us is that, again, we know exactly God's plan now because we live after the time of the Messiah. But those people, they had to only hope expectantly in what God would do. Imagine what it would be like worshiping a God that you didn't have a relationship with because you went to the temple or you made sacrifice or any of those things, but that you had faith in just because he promised the Messiah, and that's it. We think we have it bad, but they had it hard. Prophecy gave hope to people in a hopeless world, and, and that's what the point and the goal um, of it was. Second idea real quickly tonight is the Bible foretold Jesus' place of birth. Now, I know I could tell, like, I really, everyone in the first two services, they were, like, acting like they were totally asleep on this one. I don't know if they were. I don't know if it was just a bad weekend and everybody was tired, but this is not a sleeping kind of thing. I'm not going to really put you to sleep. It sounds like it because it sounds academic, but I'm not going to do it, so just don't go to sleep. All right, Jesus, the Bible foretold Jesus' place of birth. Now, again, at first glance, you might think, wow, this is really boring. Why do we care about Jesus' place of birth? But we're going to talk about it, what it means. The Bible says here in Micah 5, 2, if you've got your finger there, let me read again. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. And so <coughs> one of the biggest prophecies in the Bible about the coming of the Messiah was where he was going to be born. Now, Bethlehem, though, was a place of little significance. Let's break this down a little bit. Because Bethlehem, if we sing the carols, there's a Christmas carol called what? O Little Town of Bethlehem, right? And we get this idea if we've seen the TV shows and that sort of thing, that Bethlehem was a little place. But the word here in the original language actually is not little, or at least it's not the common word for little. It really meant little significance. It was very unimportant. It was podunk. Now, I, when I was doing this last two services, does anybody here know what podunk is? Well, Rex, okay, anybody else? No, nobody, is this not a California word? I guess not. I thought, it was a, I thought it was an American word, but I guess not. So let me give you a different word, boonies. Anybody know what the boonies are? Sort of, somewhat, okay, podunk, boonies, means uh, a little tiny place out in the middle of nowhere that's not worth anything. Now, first service decided that Podunk in California was Willows, California. Has anybody ever heard of Widow Willows? Okay, if you're from Willows, I apologize profusely, okay? It was not me, someone else picked Willows. But we're going to use Willows, okay? And, and so what the Bible's saying here is that, look, Bethlehem was of little significance. It had no real value. And people knew that. You know, when Jesus was growing up, Pharisees would say later, the, the guys that kind of gave Jesus a hard time, they would say, you know, what good can come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth is just about as podunk as Bethlehem. They're both podunk. What good can come out of something of such small significance as Bethlehem? Here's the thing. Let me put it in context. Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish world. It was also the center of the religious world for all intents and purposes. And the priests, the Pharisees, all those folks in Jerusalem it would be like the big dogs in L.A. or New York City, right? So can you imagine the rich, the powerful, the elite in L.A. encountering someone from Willows, California, saying that they were, in fact, the Messiah that God had sent into our world? Preposterous. That's what it would be. 
they were considered absolutely preposterous. You don't understand, this is L.A. You don't just say you're the one that God came, brought into the world. You're from Willows, man. You don't know anything. You're podunk, you're boonies. You're of little significance. So Bethlehem was a place of little significance, and yet it is the place that God picked to be the birthplace of the Messiah. Now, here's an interesting thing about Bethlehem. Even though the Messiah was greatly heralded by people, Jesus' birth was of, and life was of little significance to most people, right? Because it was podunk. He was just some, some poor slob who came out of Willows, California, and he doesn't go with a jet set in Jerusalem or L.A. or New York City. It just doesn't work like that. He's an insignificant person. He was born in obscurity, and he would die in obscurity as far as the rich and the elite felt like. Jesus was of little significance like his town. Now, here's the interesting thing about Bethlehem. Bethlehem was definitely, was definitely podunk, but there's some things we need to know about Bethlehem. First of all, anybody know what Bethlehem means? It means the town of food, of bread, right? So, I mean, how ignoble of a name, right, for a town. But who's, there's one person in the Bible, one very famous person, who was born in Bethlehem, which was David. Well, Jesus, right, of course. But before him was born David, right? And David was the king of Israel. David was the guy that everyone thought, this is the, this is the guy, right? This is, I mean, when, you know, David was the best king ever. He was the one that God had really ordained to be the king. And even the Bible talks about him being a sort of the Messiah in a small little M, that Jesus would be like him, that he would be, in fact, descended from him or the house of David, right? And so the thing is, is that everyone knew that there could be the possibility, sure, of someone coming out of Bethlehem, as podunk as it was, because David did. But it didn't put much, they knew it would happen, but it didn't put much stock in people from there. Let me see if I can give you the contrast that exists. When Herod, if you guys remember from Luke 2, when Herod finds out that the Magi and the shepherds and all those people are claiming the Messiah is going to be born in Willows, California, what does Herod do? He kills all the children, right? Kills all the male children. Well, first of all, that's an evil and despicable act, right? But Herod, even as evil and as powerful of a king as he was, he still was afraid that the prophecy was true. So he was not going to take any chance that there could be a house of David being born in Willows, California. Even though people laughed it off and thought it was ridiculous, a lot of people took it seriously, even those people who did not believe now, there's one other thing, too. Let me mention it like this. I tried to think of what royalty was like in America. We don't really have royalty here, so it's hard to do. But I thought of one family's kind of become royalty, which is the Kennedys, right? And, and I use the Kennedys example because if your last name is Kennedy, you could get elected. Just put your name on the ballot, and you'll get elected, okay? So you could be, let's not say John Kennedy. Let's say your name is Billy Bob Kennedy from West Kennebunkport, right? and you're running for house of whatever somewhere up towards Maine, right? You're still a Kennedy, right? I mean, you're still the royal line, and you're still going to get elected. Or maybe not. That may be my cynicism. There. But you're still going to get elected because it's royalty, right? I mean, they're, they are royalty, um, and uh, or at least the closest, I think, that we have here in the States. And so there was a real fear among the enemies of God that there really could be someone who would be raised up. Now, they didn't have CNN camped out there nine after nine waiting to see uh, for a thousand years whether the Messiah was going to be born, but they thought that if there was a Messiah being born, that he would be what? That if a Messiah would come out of Bethlehem and be of the house of David, 
what kind of person would he be? Well, he would be a Kennedy. He would be royal. He would be a big dog. He would show up in Jerusalem, and he would be a big dog from the beginning. Not, not some poor guy named Jesus. That's never what they thought would be happening. And yet the Messiah would be from a royal bloodline. The Bible says this, the prophecy also in Genesis 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor, right? And Judah being the house of David, another name for it. And so everyone knew that it was possible, but it just seemed improbable. It just seemed contrary to common sense that there could be someone born from Bethlehem who would actually be a Kennedy, would actually be a Judah, would actually be from the house of David. The interesting thing, too, is that, of course, that makes it statistically really interesting. Because if the Messiah was going to be born in L.A., Jerusalem, then there'd be lots of people who could claim to be the Messiah. But if you were born in Bethlehem, the town of food, the town of bread, right? Um, <laughs> there's not that many people born there. So there's not many people who could claim to be the Messiah. And that was kind of the catch there. And that's what makes it very statistically interesting because the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. Now, and he also will be born of the house of David, which of course Jesus was both. And so, here's the thing. Let's talk about this third idea here tonight real quickly. Is that the Bible foretold Jesus' divine glory. Now, here's the interesting thing about this passage. Is that we would, we tend to look at it and think, you know what, this is a prophecy about Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem, we know that. We, we sing the songs, we sing the carols. But there's another prophecy in here that it's, it's a little more nuanced, a little more hidden. Um, but I want to bring that out tonight. And, and he says, are you are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past, right? Well, that sounds poetic, but what does that really mean? Well, the Bible foretold Jesus' divine glory, um, something in a way that the people in the ancient world would have understand, even if we don't understand it today. Um, Israel often, let me sort of set this one up for you. Israel often suffered under bad rulers. Now, here in the United States, here in the West, um, when we have a bad ruler, what happens? We get higher taxes, uh, the economy maybe goes bad, you know, things happen, we don't like it, we complain, we vote them out four years, eight years at the worst later, right? Senators, congressmen, faster than that. Okay, so if we have a bad ruler in the West, they tend to be stinky, but not really a major problem. But in the ancient world, when you had a bad ruler, a king was a king for life until he either, he either lived till he died and he was either killed or executed or died in battle or something like that, but he fought tooth and nail to hold on to his kingship. And so when, when the people in the ancient world had a bad king, they were stuck with him, and the bad king didn't just raise their tax a little bit. The rad king would come into the village, take all their money, kill a lot of their kids, do lots of horrible things, and treat them terrible. So, when you were in the ancient world, when you had a good king, it was a huge difference than having a bad king. You rejoiced in it. Now, here's, let me break it down a little further. Did you guys see on the news where they had the mummy database? They, did, they started, they, they created this database. You know what mummies are, like Egyptian mummies, right? And uh, they have like hundreds of them, hundreds of them around the world. And so, they finally collaborated and got a database going where they could sort of evaluate sort of uh, how they died and, you know, the things that were going on with them and that sort of thing. And they figured out that almost all the mummies um, died around 30 years old, give or take, okay? So in the ancient world, you died at 30. That's, I mean, I'd be dead, most of you would be dead. That's just the way it was. 
you lived as old as Rex, they thought you were probably God at that point or, or something, you know what I mean? And, and so, so the thing is, is that you died at 30. And you know what the thing is? The mummies died of what? Some of them died of cavities. Can you believe that? I mean, that, that's a horrible way to die at 30 of a cavity, right? And they, they lived hard, quick, miserable lives in the ancient world. Um, we are very blessed that we don't, we don't have to suffer, I guess, quite as much. And, and, and so I tell you that because in the ancient world, their viewpoint on the past and the future is radically different than ours. Let me give you an example. In the modern world, we look at the past. If this is the future and this is the past, we look at the past as being bad, right? is, well, people were Neanderthals, you know, they didn't have technology, it was hard, it was difficult. We don't want to live in the past. We look forward to progress, right, in the future. So if this is the past, this is the future, we see everything going like this, right? Going this way. Progress, the future, that's where it's at. We don't want to deal with the past, we want to be about the future. I mean, they're going to have, like, you know, phones that, you know, teleport you and stuff in the future. That's what we're looking for, right? But in the ancient world, it's completely the opposite. In the ancient world, people didn't care about the future because they had no hope of any type of good situation in the future. Future brought famine, it brought pestilence, it brought problems, it brought death. That's what it brought. So in the ancient world, guess what people look to as being the good? Is the past. Past. And so what would happen is in the ancient world that people would talk about the past as being the golden years. They would say, especially when they had a bad king, they would say, remember the good king that your father had. Wouldn't it be nice to live during that time again? And so the past became idealized, and the future became a problem. Now, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says this in 5.2. It says, one whose origins are from the distant past. And see, here's what happens, is that the Bible is telling us here that the Messiah would come from an ancient glory because the past was the good. The past was awesome. You know what the Assyrian kings did, especially the more wicked ones? When they took power, they would tell their subjects, what? I am a king of old. That's what they would say. Why did they say that? Because they wanted the people to believe two things. That's what the un people understood. Number one, that they were going to be a good king. They were lying, but that's what they said. They were going to be a good king, and it also meant they were divine. They were from God. Because only God comes from the old, from the golden time. And so when the Bible talks about the fact that Jesus is uh, a king from old, he is saying, the Bible is saying that he is the best kind of ruler, the best kind of God that you could ever imagine. He comes from the golden age, the golden time, the time of peace and prosperity and harmony, and that, in fact, he is coming from God. That is who he's coming from, and he is coming to make your life better, to make your life not miserable, to make it healed, to make it right, to make it good. And, and in the modern world, we would see the future as being good, but in the ancient world, they didn't care about the future. They cared about the past. The past was gold. And so anything that was a reference to the past, that was what they cared about. You know, even the Greeks, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all the Romans, any of the other people in the ancient world, they would have understood it too because they also believed that the heroes, the great heroes of men were from the olden days and that anything good and godly was from ages past. And so anything that appealed to that was what's really important. And so when a person, whether they were Jewish, again, or Greek or Gentile or whatever, when they read this, they understood that, that Jesus was coming not from himself, but that he was originating from God and he was originating in goodness. And that that goodness was going to be the source of his rule. And that even though that you may face famine and pestilence and difficulty today, 
that his glory would overshadow that and that he would bring a golden age as if when the world was new, because they believed, you know, at the very beginning it was awesome, but as if the world was new and it will make everybody's life great and wonderful and glorious. Let's pray. God, we just come before you today, Lord, and we just thank you that you sent your Messiah, um, God, and that we are able to know you and to look forward to what you are going to do in our lives. Lord, it's, you know, we, we, we want to be as excited as Will Ferrell in that movie clip about Jesus coming into our world. God, we want to be excited because he's prophesied and you prophesied and said that he was going to be born of royal blood in this place and that that royalty was going to extend all the way back to heaven. God, we just thank you that your glory and your golden age is available to us, Lord, that we can take hold of it in our lives. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name.